42. So if you've got a Bible, you can open that up. It'll be on the screen as well. And we're looking at Job chapter 42 from verse 7 to verse 17. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namahite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him, comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the later days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders here at City Light. And um, this is the, the final week in the book of Job, um, if you hadn't picked that up or if you haven't been with us over the last couple of weeks. And um, it's been great to get into this book. I When... When the time was coming up to um, probably the, the weeks leading up to the start of the series, um, as we were sitting down as a staff team just planning out some of the things, the thought occurred to me, why did, in September last year this seemed like such a good idea and now as it's approaching I'm like, why are we doing the book of Job when winter is about to hit? Um, but I think in, in, in speaking to a lot of you, it seems like diving into the truths, the deep truths of the book of Job has been more encouraging than morbid. And it's a funny thing like that. There's, an old, there's a line from an old indie song by a band called Bright Eyes where he says, when I press the keys, it all gets reversed. The sounds of loneliness make me happier. And I wonder if there's, there's something to that in the book of Job, that as we've considered these deep things and the issues around suffering, that instead of it being just a, I don't know, a morbid recapitulation of suffering, that actually there, there has been deep truth in here and that there is an encouragement in the gospel and the word of God that can be found nowhere else. And so my prayer is that as we, as we finish this up in our final week, that, um, that that's what it would be for you. As we, as we reach the conclusion of the book of Job, of the story of Job, and it reaches its kind of final end, that it would be for your uplifting and your encouragement. Because this part of, of the book of Job is an unequivocally just happy end. And, and this, was, it, this was sort of came to mind recently that I, I think it's the case that we're seeing a lot of movies and shows start to shy away from the happy ending. Uh, just last week, uh, Mel and I were watching a movie called Isle of Dogs. I don't know if anyone has seen this, but this is, um, this is Wes Anderson's latest film, and it's a stop frame and a motion, uh, what is it, a claymation flick. 
And um, and it was a it was a, a great little flick to watch. So I'd recommend you watch it. And I won't I won't spoil it for you here. But um, as we were watching, the the thing that struck me about it, well, there were two things. One was about somewhere near the end, we realised that our eldest, who's only six years old, had snuck down the stairs and had been watching most of the film, and which is like it's watching like like claymation dogs maul each other and all kinds of harrowing stuff. But apparently, he was fine with it. Anyway, so that was one surprise. But the the other surprise was if you if you've seen a Wes Anderson film and he's done a few, so you might be familiar with them. His films end notoriously just ambiguous. One film critic has said about Wes Anderson's film, they said, when you leave an Anderson film, you often just feel funny. And he's saying it's usually because what happens at the end of an Anderson film is there's there's happy music and it seems like everything's resolved, and yet when you really think about it, nothing's actually changed. Things are like just maybe a little bit better than they were at the start, but all the conflicts that were there, all the broken relationships are still broken. And so in the end, you get this happy music and it's great and the graphic design is awesome. And then you kind of walk away feeling like, wait, was that just, did that really happen? Did anything actually change? But this, this one, of all his flicks, and this won't ruin it for you, is just a straight, classic, happy end. Things get resolved properly, it all wraps up, and it's a genuine happy ending. And that, for his films, is, is, you know, kind of makes it stand out. I think it probably starts to stand out amongst a bunch of films. That actually, a lot of the most popular series on Netflix or whatever subscription service you're on, a lot of the biggest series and movies are starting to move towards, one, really ambiguous heroes, where you can't really work out are they good or are they bad, and really ambiguous endings to series where it's like, is this, is this happy or is this just morbid? I think, as a culture, we're growing cynical about the happy end. That we're starting to shy away from it Because it's not something that resonates with our experience of reality. I think it's fair to say that we're becoming more cynical as a culture and therefore the the art that we're producing is reflecting that reality. That what resonates with us is this kind of mixed feeling or an uneasiness at the end of something rather than a clean-cut, happy ending. Now, if it's the case that life really is just one cosmic joke and it's an ambiguous end, then we might as well embrace it and have art that reflects that. But I would put to you that if the gospel is true, that if the story of Jesus is true, if the word of God is true, then it isn't the case that that is reality, that it's not true or accurate. I think as a culture we've rejected any grand story that finishes with a final restoration and things being finally pulled together. We've rejected that and so with that comes this impending cynicism about reality. That life is ambiguous and it ends in an ambiguous way. And yet if the gospel is true, there is a sure and fixed hope that things will end better than they started. That God is restoring all things and drawing all things together. And what we'll see at the end of the book of Job is that that is the very hope that this story brings. And so I'm going to pray that we would see that and see it clearly and that God would empower us to do that this morning. Let's pray. Father God, you are the great storyteller. You are, as it says in your word, the author, the author of life and of salvation. And Father, we pray that we would trust in your authorship, that you have written the story of history, that you are the one who is sovereign over it all, and that for all who trust in Jesus, there is an ending coming, which is good and right and gives glory to you and is for the joy of your people in you. And we pray that as we look into the book of Job, we would see that so clearly, that in in this story there is a dim echo of the gospel hope that is to come, 
that we know is sure in Christ. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to see and to hear it this morning. Amen. Well, so far, if you've been with us the whole series, this is what you've seen. The, the first week, uh, it kicks off the whole story of Job. There's this uh, dynamic between Satan and God where uh, there's almost a wager where Satan says, look, this guy Job, he doesn't fear you. He doesn't, he doesn't love you, God. He just wants your stuff. You've made him rich. Of course he follows you. God says that's not true. God takes away everything that Job has. He loses everything, fortune, family, finance, all of it goes. Even his very health goes from him. And he says, the Lord give and the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives glory to God. And so Job is vindicated as being one who really does love God for who he is. But over time, the grief and suffering start to wear him down to where he is despairing of life itself. And to add misery to suffering, he gets three friends who come along who give him terrible advice. They say to him, hey, we know how this whole thing works. God is big and powerful and he's sovereign. He's a just God. He makes sure that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Bad things are happening to you, Job, so you've got some sin that you need to repent of. Job contests, that's not the case. I'm completely innocent. That's not why this is happening to me. And he makes this case at the end of his speech. His friends kind of run out of things to say because their worldview is too weak to engage with a world with suffering. And he finishes by saying, I'm innocent. I'm not suffering because I've done something wicked or wrong you know, more than any other person. And he says, God is treating me like an enemy and God needs to answer me. Then a young guy, Elihu, just pops up out of nowhere, just the mystery man cameos, and he comes in and he says, Job, just to, just to check things back a little bit, one, yep, you're innocent in the sense that you haven't brought this on yourself, but just know that you're not fully innocent. No one is. God is a forgiving God. He isn't treating you like an enemy. He's humbling you. And thirdly, he doesn't need to answer you. And then God enters the scene and engages with Job personally, and instead of answering Job's question, he hits Job with 77 questions in a row. Questions like, where were you when I created the earth, Job? Can you bind the Pleiades and star formations, Job? Where is the way to light, Job? Can you restrain the ocean, Job? Can you make an ostrich, Job? Because I made it for a gag. That's how I am. Then Job responds, look, I've spoken of things too wonderful for me. I've overshot it. And he says, I repent, I relent, I'm comforted in dust and ashes. And then we come to this section in Job 42 where it all wraps up. And we pick it up from Job 42.7. And it says this, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, so this is the, the team captain of his friends, says, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So here God confirms that Job's friends were idiots. They were, they were hammering him with a worldview that didn't speak what was true about God. They said, God is purely retributive. If bad things are happening to you, it's because you did something bad. If good things are happening to you, it's because you're a good person. And, and God comes in and confirms what Job had said the whole time, which was, you are not speaking about God what is right. And more than that, the, the words here are strong. It says, my anger burns against you. I mean, consider what we've just read in the previous chapters. So this is the God who created the sun, so 10 million degrees hot, a planet that warms our planet from 150 million kilometers away, says that God who created that sun, his anger is burning against him. And why is God so furious? 
That's a bit of an overshot, isn't it? I mean, these friends have, like, they've given him some bad counsel. They've made his, his suffering, you know, worse by plaguing him with, with kind of almost wanting him to feel guilty as well as suffering at the same time. Isn't it a bit much, though, for God's anger to burn against them? Well, I don't think so because they have, they've defamed God and mischaracterized him. You think about it like this, the, one of the, I read an article on, um, on the phenomenon of dating apps and how it's changing the way that people interact. Now, so one of the things that dating apps are there for is to kind of re- reduce kind of the, the awkwardness around starting dating. And it's certainly done that. They were saying one of the other kind of uh, maybe unintended consequences of them is that they've, while they've made it easier for relationships to, to start or to you know, start the conversation on a relationship, They've also made rejection more acute. And he's talking about the experience of, of uh, people who'd been using dating apps and the experience of kind of being swiped aside or being judged or on certain apps being rated. And they're saying it's so dehumanizing for another person to treat you like that, like a commodity, like you can be rated and rejected or accepted like you would as you go through the grocery store and choose and select your items. And they're saying it's so, it's so dehumanizing. Because the person almost doesn't want you, but just what you can offer them. And oftentimes, it's sex that they want. And so that is, that is so dehumanizing for that person. Now here, the way they're characterizing God is to say he's like that. You, you don't want God himself. It's just that he will give you. So He's like a giant vending machine. If you do good things, then he will give you good stuff. If you do bad things, then he'll give you bad stuff. So if you just manipulate him the right way, if you say the right prayers or do the right kind of habits, you can get what you want out of God. You can use him. It's a mischaracterization of God. It's a defamation of him. They've, they haven't dehumanized God. They've de-godded God. And so God's anger burns against them, and he is right to. Because they've said what is wrong about him. They've mischaracterized him. They've defamed him and cheapened his glory. But more than that, when you speak what is false of God, it harms other people too. Job's friends multiplied his misery by bringing their bad theology in. They multiplied it to him. While he was there, sitting in dust and ashes, wasting away, having lost everything, they are then pounding him with questions, saying, "You must be guilt- this is your fault, you've obviously done something really wrong, and they compound his suffering. So when we speak what is wrong of God, it impacts others. And this is even true of our culture. We live in a secular culture that believes, look, there is no life either before or after life. There is now only what happens, and that is it. And as a direct result of our beliefs that there is no God and no great story of redemption that we're a part of, that there is a cynicism and a lack of hope that's crept into our culture. That those are directly related. God's anger burns against wrong theology because it doesn't just speak of him what is not right. It harms others. It makes suffering doubly painful. A secular worldview makes, makes suffering completely meaningless. It's just in the way of a good life. There is no point to it. But even with this, God is merciful to these friends. Look at what happens next. In Job 42, 8-9, he says, Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. 
So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Nemethite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Now what is, what is happening here? There's two things going on. One, he's making atonement for the friends. And atonement means a sacrifice on behalf of them. In the Old Testament, the way that they were reminded week in and week out that there was a, a, a barrier of sin between them and God was that there would be sacrifices made. The idea was that we've rejected God and the punishment for sin is death, that blood must be spilt. And the animals were sacrificed on behalf of the people. That their death was in their place. And we find in the New Testament that that was just a shadow of what was the true sacrifice that was to come. But here, he's saying, make a sacrifice, show that a punishment has been, has been put on someone else for these friends. So here he's making atonement for his friends. But the second thing that's going on is that he's restoring Job's friendship with his friends. He asked Job to pray for them. He says, look, I, you, I know you've had these idiot friends who've been more of a curse than a blessing throughout this whole time. And they've made everything worse for you. But, but God is saying, forgive them. Pray for them. Now, as a side note on this, I think I mentioned in the second week that one of the things that sometimes happens during a, a period of acute suffering is that some friends that you thought would be there for you let you down. And some friends who really you had almost no connection with suddenly come right into the inner circle. But inevitably, unfortunately, almost always, there are friends who let us down during these periods. And I think as a side note, God is saying here and calling us to forgive people in that situation. And part of suffering well is forgiving those friends who have let you down. Maybe not as intensely as Job or maybe even worse. Now, forgiveness is, it doesn't mean that your relationship will be the same. Forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. Forgiveness literally means to release someone from a debt. That means you, you stop wishing justice upon them and you start wanting for their good. That doesn't mean that you necessarily trust them again. That doesn't mean the friendship would be the same again. But it means for your part that you've released them from any debt. That your desire is not for them just to face justice or vengeance or to be exposed for how bad a friend they were. But to pray that, look, maybe if, maybe if it's an apology or whatever it is as part of it, it's, it's that they might be restored to right relationship with God. Here, Job is to forgive his friends. He prays for them at the end. And God restores them. He hears Job's prayer. And now comes probably the most outrageous part of the story. Talking to, to Jacob, who was emceeing today, earlier in the week about it, he's saying this is his least favorite part of the book of Job. To which I was saying, well, look, maybe, maybe this secular worldview has just creeped too much into your, into your thinking. Um, we, we'd kind of like the, the almost ambivalent end where it happens before this. But here, you get what is like almost an outrageously happy conclusion. It's, it's delirious. Have a look at what happens. 42, 10 to 17. This is what happens in the restoration of Job. It says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each, gave, uh, each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. And the Lord uh, blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first, the first daughter Jemima, the second Keziah, 
the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among the brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his, uh, and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. So here we get a happy ending on steroids. It is just it's blown way out. Job gets double of everything. It says 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels. He gets more kids, beautiful daughters with happy names. Uh, he gives an inheritance to everyone, including the daughters, which in the ancient Near East never happened. Or Everything went to the firstborn son. Here, everyone gets an inheritance. He's like Oprah. Everybody gets a car, and everyone's getting things. And he lives to 140 years, which is a very tidy root seven number, which the Hebrews love. And, uh, and it's just perfect. So what do we do with this deliriously happy ending at the book of Job? Well, as I said in the first week, this is a stylized account. This type of writing in the Bible is called wisdom literature, and it uses poetry and emphasis and hyperbole and whatever it is to, to make certain theological points really, really clear. And now, uh, the Bible is its own interpreter, so it's not good to come to a text and just say, well, I think it's you know, a stylized account or whatever. There needs to be some evidence within the actual text itself to suggest that it's meant to be read this way. And I'd put to you that as you read the, the, the end of the book, the tidiness of the numbers and the way it's written show us that this is a, a, a style of writing that is meant to, to emphasize a particular theological point. Let me just compare it with, with, with something I was reading this week in the book of Ezra, just to give you some indication of how differently they're written. One is written as history, one is wisdom literature and with poetry and style. In Ezra 2, 1-10... It gives this account. It says, Now these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive into Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordechai, Bilshan, Mispah, Bigvai, Bigvai, and, and Rehum and Bana. The number, of the, men of the, uh, the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Ara, 775. I could go on, right? There's, like, there's another like 20 verses of this. But you notice the difference. First of all, there's a date. There's a king mentioned, which was how you, you, you kind of knew what time period it was in. So there's a king mentioned. Then there are specific geographical locations mentioned. It's in Babylonia. They're going to Jerusalem and to Judah. More than that, there are names that you can reference against history. And the numbers are specific numbers because they were the numbers that were a result of counting rather than stylized. In the book of Job at the end, it's different. The, the numbers are meant to, to emphasize an outrageous restoration. Job is outrageously innocent at the beginning. He's, just, he's the holiest guy who's ever lived and it's, and it's emphasized on point on point. Then he suffers outrageously. All these things happen to him within a series of days and wave after wave of, of tragedy hits him. Then, then he, he is outrageously confronted by God who hits him with an overwhelming number of questions and at the end he is finally outrageously restored completely. See, what is it that the book of Job is getting at at the end here? What's it trying to emphasize with all these numbers? It's that God is an outrageous restorer. That the way that he deals with his people is with lavish and generous restoration. Here at the end of the book, 
we see Job's account stylized to make one clear theological point, that God restores his people who have suffered and comforts them double. See, is the application here then that everything is going to work out great in this life? So as you read the book of Job, you're like, well, you go through a suffering, but remain faithful because in the end you'll be able to cash in before you go home. Well, I don't think so. I think for a couple of reasons. One, because the friends have already been busted for their prosperity gospel. That is, the God is a matter of input. If you input faithfulness, you output good things and blessings. If you input unfaithfulness or sin, you'll get curses, and that's how it goes. And they've been rebuked for that in the strongest of terms. God is like, no, that is not how I operate. That is a mischaracterization. That is a defamation of men. But also, Job still lost his family here, and Job still dies at the end. And so it isn't, I don't think, I think it's reasonably clear that the book of Job is not saying that everything's going to work out necessarily in this life. But there are hints here that in the final account, God will restore. And there are hints even here in an Old Testament wisdom literature book of a final restoration that comes even after death. Let me draw your attention to one thing. You notice at the beginning of the account, it said that God doubled everything to to, um, Job. And if you look at the beginning of the story, you'll see that the numbers kind of match up. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. At the beginning in Job 1, that's what we're told. And at the end, he has 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. Everything is exactly double. But did you notice that when his family was restored, he had seven sons and three daughters? And in the opening chapter, he has seven sons and three daughters. It's the only thing that's not doubled. And so one of the thoughts with this might be, well, if there is an afterlife in which he will see all of them, then in fact they have been doubled. And you might be saying, well, that's a bit of a stretch. That's very subtle. Even for Hebrew literature, that's very subtle. Well, here's something that's not a stretch. Think about what happens at the end of the book of Job. Just think about, just think about it in blank terms. What do we have at the end of the book of Job? We have the anger of God turned away from some idiot friends by a sacrifice. We have an innocent man who suffers. We have someone acting like a priest who offers up prayers and sacrifices on behalf of his idiot friends to save them, and God forgives and restores them. Then we have God giving an incredible inheritance um, through Job, through which his whole family is blessed. The book of Job might be subtle, but God is not subtle in magnifying his son. When we see the gospel, it is clear that Job is an echo of what we see loudly in the gospel. What Job whispers, the gospel shouts. And it's this, that Jesus brings hope. That Jesus ultimately is the answer. That he is the ultimate Job who suffered innocently and didn't lay down, didn't lay down animal sacrifices for his friends, but laid down his own life for them. And that he is the one who has guaranteed our restoration. Look at what it says in Romans 5, 1 to 8. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have a peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have attained access through faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 
and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what do we do with this? The truth is that we can be sure that things will get better in the final accounting rather than worse because Jesus has already died and risen again. For Job, despair starts to set in when he wonders, what's, what's the point of this? If we enter the world only to have things taken away, if it's a zero-sum game, what, what's the point of it in the end? But hope is to know that no matter where we are in life, that the best days are still yet to come and not behind us. And this is the gospel hope. This is the hope of the glory of God. And this is the hope that you need in order to thrive in a world in which things are unpredictable and where suffering doesn't come at convenient times and when we're ready to account for it. Our daughter Harper is almost three. And she's very full of life and joy. She's exploding with language at the moment. And she just... Like, she's just very, very complimentary and encouraging. Because she's just a, a happy kid, she'll just come out with things like, she'll just sit me down and grab my face and say, Daddy, you're my best friend. Daddy, you're a beautiful daddy. Daddy, this is my, my favorite one, and I think she must be echoing it from us. She's like, Daddy, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Which is a little bit condescending, but you know, you're willing to forgive it for a two-year-old. But, um, but this is what, and I, I think it happens around this age, out of nowhere, she started talking about dying. Yesterday, we were getting out of the car. Sorry, sorry to switch gears on everyone there, but it's, it's all right. Let me kind of get to the point. And yesterday, we were just getting out of the car, and for no reason, she just goes, we're not going to die. And I'm like, ah, okay. And then we just sort of kept, like, we're all the way to play. There was no context of conversation. It wasn't on the radio or anything like that. And she's coming out with these comments just every now and then, and we don't know what to do with it. But for, for her, she obviously doesn't have, I think, doesn't have any real grasp of what that means or anything, so she can just throw it out there, right? Do that and then go smash some lollies, do whatever at a kid's party, right? It's not really a thing for her. And when you're, when you're two years old turning three, naivety is enough to be able to handle those kind of concepts. But it's not enough as you get older, is it? To deal with the realities of what we actually deal with in life, you need something more solid than just naivety. You have to grow up. We need deep truth that will anchor us in the tumult of suffering. And there is no anchor like the cross. There is a message of good news, and it's not about what what might happen. This has already happened. He has already secured the future that is to come. In In Romans 5, it says, We have peace with God already. Because Jesus has died, because while we were, still, we were enemies of Christ, he died for us on our behalf. It has already happened. That future has already been secured. It is an anchor and a hope. It is a, a sure promise that God is the great restorer and that he can be trusted. It's, it's, it's whispered in Job and it's shouted in the gospel. God is the great restorer. But there's one other thing that we get from this. Job in this text, in this last text, is acting as a priest. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear priest. Oftentimes, oftentimes when I tell people, I, like when they ask what I do for work and I say I work at a church, they say, are you a priest? Um, 
and because often that's what we have associated with working in a church full time. So when you think of a priest, you might think of someone in very holy sort of clothes or whatever it is. But a priest literally was a go-between, so an, an intermediator between God and humans. And it was, it was someone who would, who would mediate between two parties. And here, Job acts like a priest. He's a go-between between God and his friends. And, and God is asking him to do that. He says, you know, make these sacrifices, pray for your friends, and I'll accept it. But Job is an echo of Jesus, the great high priest. Look at what it says in the book of Hebrews 4.14-5.10. to It makes this implication about Jesus and his death on the cross for our, on our behalf. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This is how Job was acting. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when he is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is Jesus, the great high priest. And the book of Hebrews draws the implication that, that he was the great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, because in every way he suffered. In every way he knew temptation, and yet without sin. That the comfort of the gospel is that while God is fully and completely sovereign over a world in which there is suffering, that he has been subjected to suffering in that world. That he didn't stay idle and distant and far off, but came and was fully and completely a part of it. And if your objection to belief in God is that God cannot be both good and powerful over a world like this, then the gospel really is the most profound answer to that. There's a, a short story, and it's uh, obviously a, 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 a fiction work, and it describes uh, all the nations gathered before God on this final day for judgment. And a group of people who have suffered acutely uh, starts to sort of take objection to the fact that they should be judged by some holy God who's been distant and far off. And, and a number who are there, so someone who's suffered through the Holocaust, people have, a number of people who've suffered in all kinds of horrendous ways, kind of get together and they decide that, that God is no fit judge, that in fact they're going to sentence him. And I'll pick up the story from their sentencing. It says this, Their decision was that God should be sentenced to life on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest, friend. Let him, let, uh, closest friends. Let him face false charges and be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. 
Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to watch it. As each leader announced his or her portion of the sentence, loud murmurs went up from the crowd of assembled people. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. Who will bring bring a charge against the Almighty? We will not get an answer to our suffering, but we have a profound answer in Christ. Christ has suffered. Christ the innocent suffered more than any, and he is worthy of our worship, and the cross declares it. One poet, Edward Shalito, who was overwhelmed by the suffering he saw in World War I, wrote this poem about uh, the, the testimony of the cross to suffering people. He said, The heavens terrify us, they are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us, where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we know thy grace. The other gods were too strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou did stumble to thy throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds but thou alone. The gospel, and especially the cross, sets apart Christianity from any other worldview or major religion. No one else claims that God in flesh came and suffered and died on our behalf to restore us to relationship with Him. He is the great restorer. And when all is said and done, we will stand before the throne of the great restorer, made fully new, and we will behold the creator and sustainer of the universe. And the book of Revelation says, we will cry, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and power. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. God is the great restorer. May he teach us to know this deeply through our lives. Let's pray. Father God, the book of Job walks through the agony of suffering and the pain that we wrestle with and comes to the conclusion that you are great beyond measure and that you ultimately are the great restorer in whom we may hope. That no human effort, no political movement will bring ultimate peace in a world in which there is so much disturbance, but you ultimately will that you are good and faithful and worthy of all praise. That Jesus, you are worthy because you are the lamb who was slain. You are worthy to be worshipped, that you are worthy to rule over all creation. And Father, we pray that this would be our great hope and peace amid suffering. We pray this for the sake of your name. Amen. We're going to spend just a moment as we do, week in and week out, reflecting on the truths of Job. Then we're going to, Jacob's going to lead us through responding to communion and singing after that. Let's take a moment to reflect.